Before we jump into the book of John, uh, I just want to kind of draw your attention to this chair. Does everybody see this chair? Okay, good. Now, I'm hoping not to have to use this chair today because um, my workout partner, which is Tim Hodgman, um, he put me through a grueling workout on Friday and, and Saturday. Um, it was terrible. So I'm having a hard time walking, even holding myself up. So while we were singing, I was like, man, I'm going to have to sit down. I can't even keep myself up. He decided that we'd do an hour and 15 minutes on Friday of squats. All right. Have you ever done squats before? All right. Squats are the devil. The devil. And then uh, Saturday morning, we decided to do uh, lower back, right? What a terrible combination of squats one day, lower back the next. I'm barely holding it up. I'm barely holding it together over here, guys. Now, this chair, I believe, if I don't make it through this message holding myself up by this pulpit, I believe this chair can hold me up. Can anybody say amen to that? Do you believe this chair can hold me up? Okay, good. I hope y'all say amen, right? I really feel bad about myself. Don't damage my self-esteem. <laughs> okay, so I believe it can hold me up. I believe it can hold me up. But I really believe it can hold me up. Hold that in your mind. I believe right now. I'm looking at it. I believe it can hold me up. But I don't really yet believe it can hold me up. Are you with me? Are you hanging with me? Hold that in your mind. And take your Bible open up to the Gospel of John. We're going to be going through the Gospel of John in a couple different places. We're going to read some texts of Scripture are you okay with doing the scripture reading? Might be a little bit more scripture reading today. I know that might be wrong to do in church, but we're going to go ahead and do it. The biblical writers are okay with it. Let me tell you a little bit about John, the guy who wrote this gospel of John, fourth gospel. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Let me tell you a little bit about his family. So t- today's goal is for me to do an overview. I did an overview of Matthew, of Mark, of Luke. We're going to do one of John as we keep doing this discipleship in the gospels. My goal in this series is to kind of give you some some understanding as someone reads through, as you take someone you're discipling through the Gospels, that you can answer some key questions. We've answered the question, why is the word Son of Man used so much in this series? We've answered, why does, some, why does Jesus sometimes say, don't tell anybody about me, when I thought we were supposed to tell people about Jesus. We did an overview of Matthew, of Mark, of Luke, and now we're going to do one of John. Now it's interesting, um, when you look at the book of John and you're thinking, What's the theme of John? It's belief. Believe. That's the theme of John. In fact, oftentimes the book of John is called the gospel of belief. It's the fourth gospel. It's the last one written. Let me tell you a little bit about the man John. You kind of have a backstory. Um, John. John, the apostle John. And, and some, there's a debate on this, but you, I can show you where you can track it. Um, in my New Testament survey um, class back in whew, over 20 years ago, I remember a teacher and the book that we used had uh, taught and showed us the track that John's actually the cousin, uh, that John's mother is the sister of Jesus' mother, which makes John the cousin of Jesus, right? Makes John a cousin of Jesus. I can show you, but that's what they had taught us uh, in, in, that, in my bachelor degree in New Testament survey. His father was Zebedee. Um, his mother was Salome. Now, it's interesting, even when you go, look over at John chapter 20. We're just going to be going back and through John. The good thing is we're just in one solid book, so it won't be that much more difficult. If you go multiple different books, it might be hard. John chapter 20 and verse 25 Did I say John 20? I meant John 19. It's okay. Just one chapter. John 25. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. Does anybody know who the disciple whom Jesus loved is? It's John. John often refers himself to the, as that disciple whom Jesus loved. 
He doesn't say in the book, I, John, am the writer, but he gives us enough evidence. He says he is the witness in chapter 19, verse 35. We'll look at that later. He calls himself a disciple whom he, whom Jesus loved many times. It says, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So we can see even here this, 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 that, that his mother, John's mother, sees and hears at the same time Jesus says, this is your mother, take care of her. No wonder John is called the disciple whom whom Jesus loved. A very close, very intimate relationship. So much so that if you were to entrust your mother to some disciple, this is the disciple that Jesus entrusted. Very big. No wonder he says that. By the way, John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. But you can call yourself a disciple that Jesus loves. What a great way to actually think about life, right? How would our life look different if we actually thought to ourselves, I am a disciple of Jesus that Jesus loves, right? I mean, the only way a person could do that is if they really valued the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. So they really understood that their sins were taken away by the work of Jesus and his righteousness was put on your account. It's a good way to think about life. Also, a little thing about John. So we see the family connection that many, many scholars um, can connect and would say he's actually a cousin of Jesus. He's one taking care of Jesus' mother. He's part of the inner circle. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. But also, he's given the surname. He and his brother James are given the, the, surna, the surname Boanginese. Does anybody know what Boanginese means? The sons of thunder. Now... Most people would think like, okay, we've got John here and he's a disciple whom Jesus loved. So John must have been a very sensitive and, you know, very meek kind of guy. I don't think you get that name, Boanginese, if you're that kind of person. So John must, must have, don't, so don't distract and think a loving person isn't a person zealous with a lot of, bit of, with a lot of fire. They're called the sons of thunder. That's the name that James and John are given. So obviously he was a man with a fiery passion. Of course, I love that as we're reading about this particular book that he wrote, he's a man of fiery passion, a fiery passion for the Lord. I have noticed this in the first church that I served in. It was really a, kind of a country setting church. It was out. I mean, the church itself, when you went to the church and looked around, it was nothing but cow pasture all around us as far as the eye could see. Right. And one of the great things is we had a lot of cowboys in that church. And I, I tell you, if you've ever known people who are cowboys do rodeo, they're kind of rough around the edges, right? They're, they're kind of like the sons of thunder, kind of a Boanginese kind of style. But I've noticed these guys, when they would come to Jesus, they were the most sensitive and tender-hearted to the things of God. Every time you kind of saw one of these cowboys come to faith, it was almost like I get reminded of, of John and his brother, these sons of thunder now that are thunder for thunder and zealous for the Lord. So that's, that's John, this apostle of Jesus. That's a little bit about his family. I'm just giving you some background to understand this book. Um, a little bit about where he's at when he writes this. Now, the church life in the early church, he was a leader in the Jerusalem church. We can see that clearly in the scripture. We can see him in Acts 4 with Peter um, being threatened and released. We can see him in Acts chapter 8 confirming the gospel spread to the Samaritans. After the destruction of Jerusalem, it, it seems that with, with history chronicles that he's writing this book from actually Ephesus, right, in Asia Minor. You know, shortly after, 10 years later, of when this book was written to John, we got the book of Revelation and written on the island of Patmos, uh, very close off the coast where Ephesus would be. So he's writing from Ephesus. Now, John, the guy who writes this book, he only writes this, but he also writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Does anybody know another book that he's written? It's really popular. Revelation, right? So the Apostle Paul wrote a lot of our New Testament, but... John has written a lot of our New Testament as well. And what's really interesting, look what he gets to write. So the apostle, he's really, I mean, the apostle Paul, he's writing epistles, right? Then you've got Luke, he's writing gospel and, and he's tracking the history of what the gospel has done in Acts. You get John. John's writing not only gospel, not only epistle, right? First, second, third John. But he gets to write apocalyptic literature too. I mean, what a traverse that this guy gets to write, the Apostle John. Now, the other three Gospels were already written at this time uh, before John had written this. Most would believe he wrote it sometime between 80 and 90 A.D. So this would be sometime, um, you know, 
30 to 40 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been there and out, some 60 or so years after the resurrection of Christ. Now, a lot of people would wonder, why in the world would we need uh, another book, another gospel? Well, I would say this. It's been some time. By the time he writes this book, it had been marinating for quite some time. Let me give you an example. If you're going to cook meat and grill, right? Does anybody like to grill in here? Anybody a griller of meat? We've got a griller of meat. We've got one, two, right? One of the keys to really good grilling is that you marinate your meat, right? And the thing about this, the longer you marinate the meat, what happens? The better it tastes, right? So you kind of got to think about John here. He's, he's you know, 30 to 40 years removed from gospel writers. Then we've got a good 60 years removed from the, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, a lot of things have happened and a lot of marinating on who Jesus is. So when John comes to the point of writing this gospel story, what's very interesting is you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, we call them the synoptic gospels. They have so much togetherness. The, the narratives that they have track with each other so much. The gospel of John, not that way. John almost is using a lot of his own content. You don't see a lot of a lot of the same similar. A couple of places, but not by and large and whole. John is just cataloging things that the other gospel writers don't catalog about. And why is that? Because you're going to find out here in a minute that John is actually trying to put forth this gospel message, this final gospel to complete the four gospel series. And he's really focusing intently on kind of this end goal and thought of believe. He wants to show these events that happen in Jesus' life so that you may believe. He wants you to do more than just look at the stool and have a belief intellectually. He wants you to look at the stool and place real belief. I'll come back to why I said that. Now, it's interesting when you get to John. um, Matthew, he's writing to Jews primarily, but understanding that Jesus is the king of the Jews and the king Messiah for the Gentiles as well. Mark has a very strong Roman audience. Luke has a strong Gentile audience. But John is a very universal. He uses the word world a lot, right? Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. He uses that word a lot, cosmos, right? He likes that word cosmos. When you look at the Bible, when you look at the book of John, go to chapter 12, verse 36. And if you're kind of wanting a dividing point of how to look at timeline of John, when you get to chapter 12, verse 36, chapter 12, verse 36 says, while you have the light, Jesus says, believe in the light. So that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and he hid himself from them. Chapter 12 verse 36 is really the kind of middle point of the book of John. Where basically from chapter 12 and before really is cataloging about three years of history, right? We got about three years. Then you get from chapter 12 verse 36 to the rest of John. And that's really just a handful of days, right? That's kind of the breakdown. It kind of escalates. When you start to get to chapter 12, Jesus goes from the public ministry and the miracles that confirm who he is when we get to the first 12 chapters. And then we get to the back half of John past chapter 12, verse 36. He now really pulls in close to his disciples. He spends very intimate time with his disciples, helping them to understand the relationship between he and the Father, between he and them, how he's been praying for them. It's a very, it's a very intimate setting. No wonder John writes about that unique perspective. We get a picture into the upper room that we don't get in the other Gospels that we get in the book of John. It's a great book. It's a book of emotions. One, uh, one Jensen's New Testament survey has this to say, John is a book of contrast, moving quickly from grief and sadness to joy and gladness, from the storms of oppression to the peace of fellowship, from condescension earthward to ascension heavenward, from doubt to faith and from life to death. So it's a great book. It's a great book. And it's a needed gospel message. Not that there was anything wrong with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But John comes in after marinating for several years on the work of Jesus. Seeing what happened with the work of Jesus. Tracking and seeing what had happened with the Christian church. Tracking to see what were unique difficulties. And he writes the book of John and puts it in our hands couple things to let you know about it. Go to John 1. Here's some things that must have been going on when John wrote this. Now, we got the overall big idea of belief, right? But also, it, it seems that there must have been a challenge about the nature of who Jesus was. And was he truly God? 
And John makes a connection to Genesis chapter 1. If you ever hear someone say, well, Genesis chapter 1 is not meant to be understood as anything literal or real, I would say, oh, really? Because John 1.1, 1, 1. look at John 1.1. 1, 1. In the, what does it say? If you look in Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, what do you have? In the beginning. So just even when you understand John and you come to the book of John, you instantly get a tie into the book of Genesis. You get an unveiling of who the one true God is in Genesis 1. And then you come to Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, referencing Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things came through him. Apart from him was not anything, did, did not anything come into being that came into being. In him was life, and life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. He's pointing us right back to Genesis. He's letting everybody know definitively, capstoning this final gospel, that Jesus is God, right? That he was a man, but he was also divine, and that he is the creator God, that he was there. He's, he's making sure you understand. Now, don't think that he just, that he punts on the Trinity, because when you look over in chapter 17 and chapter 16, you find you get we get a picture into the conversation and life and relationship between he and the Father. But he points to make sure that you understand under no circumstances, Jesus, Jesus was God. He was there in the beginning. So make sure that you understand that. He's been marinating over that, marinating over that. He's seeing what's been happening on the scale of the Christian life. By the way, this is just normal with Christianity. Christianity has always had heresies it's had to fight, right? Um, we don't like heresies, but heresies sometimes are an opportunity, uh, not that we invite it, but to redefine what the scriptures actually say about something. Um, for many of you know that I, I kind of my, I guess kind of every, everybody has their certain areas that they're really interested in when you start studying and theologians and pastors, where my kind of area that I love is just practical theology, many times called biblical counseling. Um, you know, for years, the church in the early 1900s to the mid 1900s had lost the idea of counseling where, where we would call remedial discipleship. Most theologians and pastors had given their birthright over to forms of secular psychology that were underlated with what's called Freudianism and self-exaltation of man. And what happened is that heresy spread so far until eventually Christians had to start coming to the point where they said, wait a minute. What do the scriptures actually say about how man is made? Is, is man actually, is, um, is, are the problems that man has really a result of the Freudian concept of, of what your parents have done to you and, it, and with some kind of subjective subconscious that has no founding in scripture? No, Christians started rising up and saying, no, wait a minute, the Bible actually speaks about having a real conscience. It's tied to this spirit, this soul that you have. And let's start looking at the scriptures as what really defines what a man, what a person is. So you find that was just one heresy that started to kind of creep up. And then the word of God addresses it. In John's time, there's this heresy that's creeping up. One heresy was that Jesus wasn't actually a man. Another was that he was not actually God. And John in his gospel gets to this. He gets to this even in a stronger way. All over this text, John says the statement and catalogs Jesus saying, I am. Now, if you know anything about that word, I am, he's pointing back to the one true God who says, I am. He's pointing back to the covenant name of God of Yahweh. If God were to describe himself, he's so big, he's so powerful. What would he call himself? I am what I am. Yahweh, I am. John over and over records this. Now, the other gospel writers record Jesus saying, I am. For instance, in Mark 6 and Matthew 14, when um, he's walking on the water, the disciples are frightened. Jesus responds and says, take heart, I am. So it's, it's not uncommon in the other gospels, but Matthew Mark, and, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not use the I am statements to the frequency that John actually uses it. John records that, that Jesus said, I am the bread of life in John 6. John records that Jesus says, I am the light of the world in John 8. Jesus says he is the, I am the door of the sheep in John 10. I am the good shepherd in John 10. I am the resurrection and the life in John chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14. I am the true vine in John 15. 
Over and over, John uses that phrase, I am, to tie back to the Old Testament so that the readers would understand we're not dealing with with some, just another guy that lived in first central Palestine. We're dealing with God. We're dealing with someone who is taking the divine nature, who not only was there in the beginning, but also is the I am. Now, it's interesting, go over to, turn your Bible over to John chapter 8. In one statement, Jesus very powerfully makes sure they understand it, who he was. In John chapter 8, Jesus makes sure, and John catalogs this for the readers. Go to John chapter 8, verse 56. Jesus said to the Jewish elite, to the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, he said in John chapter 8, verse 56, And guys, this is a really big statement for him to say in this context. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Remember, if you're Jewish, you you count who you are based on Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham. Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham. Jesus says, like, yeah, Abraham was looking towards me. Abraham's faith was looking towards me. I am the one. I am the true fulfillment. Now, watch what happens. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what does he say? I am. John uniquely says the I am statements more than the other gospel writers, wanting uniquely to make sure that this final gospel message, that you have an understanding that Jesus is God. That you cannot put him in the back. He's Yahweh. I am. Even so much so, turn over to John chapter 18. I want you to notice the uniqueness of John. That in John chapter 18, in verse 5 through 6, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? um, Remember Judas comes, the soldiers come, they come to get him. All the other gospel writers catalog this, but John uniquely catalogs the incident where when they ask Jesus who he is, he says, I am, everybody falls flat. Mark doesn't do that. Luke doesn't record that. Matthew. Now, that doesn't mean nothing's wrong. They're trying to capture different aspects. John uniquely wants to make sure his readers understand that Jesus is the I am. So you go to chapter 5. It says, and they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, actually, let me give you a little bit more. Go to verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? Remember, this is the betrayal and arrest in the garden. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Just so you know, people say sometimes that the Romans or the Jews made Jesus go to the cross. Do we see any evidence here that they had enough power to actually make him go to the cross? Right? He chose of his own accord. He was in completely divine control of the whole entire situation. John makes sure everybody understands in his gospel that Jesus is God. He is the I am. It's interesting in John's gospel, he also says the word sent by the Father. Sent by the Father. He uses that more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke use. Over 40 times he does that extensively. Also, when you look at this book, remember I told you that this is the gospel of belief. Believe. Now, I was reading one commentator that said the word believe in the book of John is mentioned 99 times because the last time, the hundredth time, that's you. Doesn't that sound really cute and good? And so I was like, man, that's awesome. And then I was like, you know what? Let me go count that up. Man, it turned out 55 times, right? It was, uh, so disappointed. It sounded so poetic and nice. But still, that's a lot of times, right? John mentions the word believe more than the other gospel writers. 55 times. And give me one or two because I was counting in a concordance, right? So give me, you know, it's kind of small, right? But nonetheless, he mentions the word believe quite a bit. So what's interesting about the word believe, go over to Genesis. um, I'm sorry, not Genesis. That'd be way off. Go over to John chapter 20 and verse 30. John is super clear about, it was interesting, you could read a book of the Bible, your first reading, and kind of go, okay, let me, 
let me try to capture what did the author, what is the overall theme the authors want me to get. And sometimes it might be hard unless you have some help. But John's gospel is the gospel that's really easy to understand. What was the authorial intent? And in fact, you may wonder why oftentimes when someone's new in the faith or someone's considering the faith, why we say go to the gospel of John. Because the gospel of John is the gospel about belief. The gospel of John is written to help you believe. When you witness to somebody about the gospel message, when we witness to somebody about the gospel message, and let's say they say no to Jesus, or they're not convinced, right? You know, one of the things we've got to do as Christians is not just go, well, let me move on to the next person. You know, sometimes if someone says no to a gospel presentation, it's not just move on. At that point, the next thing would be, well, would you be willing to consider talking more about this? And if they were to say yes, you know what you could do? You take the book of John and start reading the book of John with them and start seeing how the Holy Spirit can use this word to help them believe. So it's interesting in John chapter 20, verse 30, he says this. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I want to just as a side note point out two things. I have people all the time that say you really can't know if you're a Christian. Really? Then why in the world did John write this book? Why would John say I wrote this so that you may believe, right? I mean if that wasn't true then John should just said I wrote this so that maybe you might think you're going to heaven someday. Maybe, maybe not. Let's just kind of ride the fence. Let's just roll the dice see how it Kind of plays out in the end. No, he said, so that you would believe. But notice belief. That you may believe and that you may have what in his name? Life. You know what's interesting about believing is it's not only just an intellectual ascent, but it's an all-encompassing thing. So if if we believe in Jesus, that has repercussions in our life, not not just for eternity someday, but even right now. I can remember when I came to faith at 16 years old, and making that commitment to the Lord, I remember going home that night and just wanting to open my Bible and read it. No one told me to do that. No one pressed that on me. But there was something in my soul that was like, wait a minute. Like, now that I believe that, like, like he's my king. Like, I, like life is about him now. And, and no one was telling me that in the moment. It was just something the Holy Spirit was identifying just as part of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This was interesting about believing in Jesus. It's not just an intellectual thing. So if we say we believe in Jesus, it's not just I have the intellectual data. That is basically what's happening right now if I say I believe this chair can hold me. That's the extent of what belief is when we say that. People all the time, hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, I believe. And their belief goes as far as my belief right now that this chair can hold me. No, belief has to go further than that. When John talks about believe, he says that you may believe and that you may have life in his name. Belief is more than just an intellectual assent. Belief means that you place everything you got in the person and the truth of that belief. We'll come back to that more here in a minute. So John, all the way, all over, over and over, he's talking about belief. He's making sure that you understand it. Go to chapter 19 and verse 35. Chapter 19 and verse 35. Actually, I'm going to come back to that later. So skip that. Go to chapter 1. We'll come back to that. I want to jump ahead of myself. You ever jump ahead of yourself? Yeah, we do all the time. So there's really, when you track it down, there's about 20 different kind of stories, 20 different passages overall that you can kind of lump that would be either about belief or unbelief right that's as you track all the way through john you see that in the first half the first 12 chapters you see a lot of miracles happening just so you understand those miracles weren't happening so you could pass you know a collection plate and change your last name to creflo dollar or something like that and like raise money for yourself and and preach a false gospel that was actually meant to point forward so that you could believe that who jesus was his Signs and miracles pointed to who he was. It wasn't just so that he could create a circus act or that we could later someday kind of claim some, um, you know, some make some kind of weird religion. 
So over and over, you see believe. Now, do this. Go over to John chapter 1. Let me show this to you over and over. Now we're going to do some reading of Scripture. Are you okay with reading the Bible? Are you okay with that, right? So if you're kind of thinking to yourself, well, I'm behind on my Bible reading today, we're going to get you, we're going to get you caught up a little bit right here in John. I want you to notice over and over John's emphasis on belief. That's why he's writing this book. Look in chapter 1, verse 6. I'm going to skip through and do a couple things with what time we have. Look in verse 6 of chapter 1. There was a man having been sent from God whose name was John. This is talking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. This is Jesus. So that all might, what? Believe through him. John the Baptist sent as a forerunner. Prepare the way. And he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And there, and there was the true light, verse 9, coming into the world that enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. And he came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Talking about the ethnic Jew as a whole, but as the nation of Israel. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God... Even to those who, what? Believe in his name, right? Just to say, we're all children of God as in he's the creator of God. He created us. But we're not uniquely his redeemed children of God until we believe. And just make a note. When I say believe, I'm not talking about just the belief of Nick thinks this stool can hold him up. That is not belief. That is a part of belief, but you haven't captured the whole of belief. Go to John chapter 2. You see another passage. Everybody's favorite, Jesus turns the water into wine. Be very leery if someone says they can turn water into wine today, right? I don't know if I drink that water. You look in chapter 2 verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus says, this is chapter 2, verse 1, And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, this obviously was not a Baptist wedding, said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. So there were six water jars set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing two or three measures each. Jesus said to them, fill the water jar, jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now, take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. Now when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the inferior wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this in Cana of Galilee as the beginning of his signs and manifested his glory. And his disciples, what? Believed. John's trying to get across this idea in his gospel writing that I'm going to provide you this final gospel with all the circumstantial evidence that you need to know and believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the one that will save you, and that believing in Him, you can have life and life eternal. But here's where we've got to make sure we correct ourselves. When we say the word belief, we're not talking about just Nick believes this stool can hold him. That's a part of it. But if that's all we think belief is, We've not captured the full aspect of what belief really is meant to be. Go to John chapter 4. There's several. We can't go to all of them. Because I assume the Cowboys are going to play sometime today. Actually, last week I watched the Cowboys for the second time this season. I watched them the first game of the season. And I watched them last week. And they've lost each time I've watched them. I don't know if I'm going to watch them anymore. I felt like I was missing out. Maybe this was it. Championship season. So... So Mike wrote and I watched the Cowboys and they lost. I was shocked. I've never seen that before. John chapter 4. Check this out. Now, you know John chapter, most of us know John, um, John chapter uh, 4. This is where the Samaritan woman writes. She believes. Just remember the whole village believes. Now we get to another, um, another passage. Go to chapter 4 verse 46. And he came again to Cana Galilee, and there where he had made the water into wine. 
And there was a, by the way, remember, he turned the water into wine, not just to show off so that they could what? Believe, right? That was the reason, was believe. And there was a, and, and, and obviously someone outside, a royal official had saw this and had believed who Jesus was. Watch what happens. And there was a royal official whose son was sick in Capernaum. And when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Galilee, and out of Judah into Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come to him and heal his son, for he was about to die. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, will you ever believe? The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and started on his way. How Yahweh is Jesus, he can heal you any way he wants to. He can be touched. He can touch you. He can simply, by his own word, at whatever distance, he can do it. And it says in verse 40, 51, And while he was still going, his slaves met him, saying, Your son is alive. And he inquired of them the hour that he began to get better. And then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And because that, man, that man's son was, was healed at that same hour, just as Jesus said... And he himself, what? Believed in his whole household. I mean, it, it kind of catches fire. John, over and over, as you go through this, he's pointing out belief. He, he feeds the 5,000 in John chapter 6, and you see that result is many believe. At the Feast of Tabernacles, he shouts out who he is, and many believe. Go over to John chapter 9. You see another example of belief, John chapter 9. Well, this one's precious. Love this one. John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him and saying, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Just as a side note, what man thought was absolutely incorrect, right? God's true, man's a liar, right? Their earthly wisdom, right? Their earthly intelligence thought, well... Either this baby, this blind, this guy blind, sinned in utero or his parents sinned. There could be no other alternatives. It must be this. Then Jesus comes in verse 3 and says, you're all wrong. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this was so that the works of God might be made manifest in him. Jesus had sovereignly ordained that this man would be born blind. So at the right time, he could come along, heal this man, and promote belief. Verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world, Jesus says. So then you get, the, you get that he heals him, right? We'll skip down. Go to verse 13. And they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus had made the clay and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees were also asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I wash and I see. So then some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man do such a sign? And there was a division among them. Verse 17, therefore they said to the blind man, who do you say, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes and he said, he is a prophet. Then the Jews did not believe it, uh, did not believe him for he was blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who received his sight. So now they question the parents. Is this your son whom you was born blind? And that, that he does, and then how does he now see? Verse 20, his parents answered and said, we know that this is our son, that he was born blind. And how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as Christ, they'd be put out of the synagogue. So, go to verse 23. And for this reason, his parents said, ask him. So go to, actually, I skip back here. I'm sorry. I read verse 24, didn't I? Let's go to verse 24. Therefore, a second time they called the man who'd been blind, and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Verse 25. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, the blind man says about Jesus, I do not know. But one thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, 
What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, you did not listen. Why do you want to listen again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Which I just think is hilarious, right? <laughs> this guy been blind so long, he had to use his wits, right? So he, he increased another, another faculty. And they reviled him and said, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. Clearly showing if they had known Moses, they'd know Jesus. And the man answered and said to him, well, there is a marvelous thing. What do you know where he is from? And, and he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, for if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. And if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were born entirely in sin, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. He gets excommunicated, right? Jesus heard what they had put him out. And after finding him, Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? This blind man who now can see says, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now, by the way, I want you to understand, he believed, and then what did he do? Worshipped him. So just so we understand, belief for this guy was not just the intellectual ascent of Jesus, right? Jesus healed me. That wasn't enough. I believe Jesus healed me. Not enough, right? And when he does have true saving belief, he's worshiping. Now, skip over to John chapter 20. Let me show you what is a very memorable section that you probably all know. This is a section of the guy we call the Doubting Thomas. I actually think that's a terrible phrase to call him the Doubting Thomas. He's not the Doubting Thomas. I would call him the Honest Thomas. He's the Honest Thomas. And by the way, I love that in this passage of Scripture, he doesn't degrade him. He doesn't say, how dare you, Thomas? How dare you do this? I want you to know something before we read this passage. This disciple, Thomas, had given his life to follow this guy, Jesus, right? The last time he saw him, Messiahs don't die, okay? That doesn't happen. So he wanted to know unmistakably, without a doubt, he's a first century monotheistic Jew if he, was going to, if he was going to say Jesus is alive, it would change the whole trajectory of his life. From occupation to family to all the persecution that would come on the early followers. So this God Thomas says, I need to see the evidence. Now, the disciples could have said, well, you're not going to get it. You're just going to have to have just an intellectual assent. Well, let's read what happens. Verse 19. So while it was evening on the day, the first day of the week, and while the doors were shut... The disciples, uh, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be to you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be to you, as the Father has sent me, I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins shall be forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they will be retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord! But he said, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and I put my finger in the place of the nails, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, by the way, John's writing this, you know, 60-some-odd years later, cataloging this, because as much evidence as Jesus wanted to give Thomas, there is, there, is circum, there is evidence for why you should believe in me is what John is trying to give to these readers. An extension you'll see in a minute, us. And after eight days, the disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst and said, Thomas, you jerk. How dare you not believe them? Oh, that's not in my version, right? No, he says, peace be with you. He said, Thomas, bring your finger here. See my hands. Bring your hand over here. Put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but what? But believe. Thomas, let me show, me, let me show you the evidence. All right, let, me, let me make sure you're fully satisfied 
that the belief I'm asking you to have is not just an intellectual, I think the stool can hold me, right? So Thomas answered, so Jesus satisfies the evidence, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, you have believed, and blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. What's interesting in this text, he doesn't get on to Thomas. He doesn't say, you're terrible, how dare you? No, Jesus wanted to satisfy what uniquely Thomas needed. Now, don't think that that I'm saying that if you tell Jesus today, I'll believe if you show up visibly and I can thrust my hand into your side, I got to have the same thing that I got to have with Thomas. Jesus makes none of that promise. But he does promise that there'll be others who will believe, who won't get to see it like Thomas, but the way that you believe, blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Meaning this, Jesus would provide the evidence. And one of those evidences, guess what? It's the book of John, 60 years later, being written, telling them, here's the circumstantial evidence. I'm an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. And yes, you can believe in this man, Jesus, who is the Son of God. I'm writing this to make sure, under no mistakable circumstances, he was a man and he was God, and he died for your sins, and he rose again to give you eternal life and life right now, and you can believe in him. Now, here's the thing about belief. Our American belief system is terrible, right? Because we think believe is just mere intellectual assent. We think belief is, here's a stool, I believe it can hold me, and honestly, that's as far as we go. And I would tell you this, if that's as far as your salvation has gone, if that's as far as you have repented of your sinfulness and trust Christ, and you're wondering, am I saved? Let me be honest with you, you might not be. You might not be. Thomas, Believes in Jesus. And what's his response? My Lord and my God. Doesn't live for himself anymore. You're my Lord. You're my God. I serve you now. So there's a story um, about a guy who um, was one of these trapeze artists, right? Right? Where he's, uh, I say trapeze, I'm saying tightrope walker, right? He was known for walking a tightrope over Niagara Falls. But there came one time where he said, I want to get a wheelbarrow and I want to walk the wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls on a tightrope, right? And he said, I need a volunteer. So he had two guys, right? And he said to these two guys, do you believe I can tightrope this wheelbarrow and carry someone in this wheelbarrow across this tightrope across Niagara Falls, right? One guy said, I believe. And then he says, well, jump in the wheelbarrow then, right? <laughs> and then I'll push you across. And the guy was like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that, right? That's crazy. And then another guy, he says, do you believe I can do this? And he says, yes. He says, well, jump in the wheelbarrow and let me push you across it. Which of those two guys believed? The one that put all his faith in reliance. So what does it mean to really believe? It means that you have to completely, totally, in trust and faith, place everything on Jesus. There's no plan B. There's nothing else. He's Lord. He's God. Anything shy of that, you're not dealing with biblical belief. American belief is this idea of just intellectually saying, oh, okay, I was taught the Bible stories. Okay, I get it. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe. I mean, I've been to church enough. I've heard it say enough. Yes, Jesus lived and died and he resurrected. That's great. I believe, right? If that's as far as your belief has gone, friend, that's not saving belief. Saving belief is... I believe that I deserve hell. I believe that Jesus took my judgment in my place and puts on me his righteous account by his righteous life. I believe that Jesus wants me to follow and obey him. He is my Lord and King. You'll see it manifest in your life in really simple ways, such as follow him believers' baptism. You'll see him in little simple ways like forgive others as Jesus has forgiven you. You know what's really interesting? I love forgiveness. Because if you ever want to take a, a firm grip on your life and say, do I really believe? Believe, like, believe, right? Can you forgive others like Jesus has forgiven you? You know, most people can't do that. Why? Because their belief is really just an intellectual assent. It's not real. 
When Jesus is real, when you really have had believing, saving faith, you actually forgive. It changes your life. It takes you from a life controlled by the flesh to a life controlled by the Spirit. It takes us from a life that exalts ourselves to a life that exalts God. Even this, even this. A life that truly believes in Jesus. He's King, He's Lord. I'm not saying you can't struggle with some kind of chemical addiction. But I am saying this. You'll not nurture that addiction and you'll not rest in it and find satisfaction in it. There's so many people that would go, I believe in Jesus. I mean, I've got these chemical addictions. And I would say, you know, you, you know what the problem is? You might just be believing in Jesus, but what you've got to really start doing is, Jesus, he's Lord, he's God. Like, believe in Jesus, right? And like, he becomes Lord. You know, even in the world of chemical addictions, even anything that you want to call addiction, there's a worship issue that's going on. There's a worship issue that's going on. Like, we, we so think people are just merely bio, biology. We have biology. We're also a, a soul, right? There's something going on there. It's a worship issue. So as we end the message, the, the question is this. Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and King? Have you placed your faith and trust in him? Is he just a guy that you come and hear about, that we hear about like at church and kind of you know, cute little stories? Or is he Lord? Is he God? Has he changed your life? Is he transforming you? Has he done a work in you? Have you committed your life to follow him? Have you followed him in the baptistry? Have you followed him in making disciples? Has he become the Lord and King of your life? Has he become the treasure, the pleasure, the pearl of great price? Has he become your Lord and God? If he's not, that you, then you don't have genuine biblical belief. Because when he believes... You have life and you have life eternal. John is trying to get that message across. I pray, God, that we all have that today. Would you pray with me? There's someone here who has never admitted their sin nature. Has never realized they deserve the judgment and wrath of God. May today they believe that you satisfied the judgment that's deserved. And may they move off this spectrum of just an intelligent belief, but to belief that trusts this place complete weight and support for salvation on the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. May someone right now commit them their life who is not saved to Jesus. May they tell somebody. May they follow him in believer's baptism. May they follow him in the life of a disciple. God, would you do it, Holy Spirit? Only you can do it. For your glory and for your name. And God's people said, would you stand to your feet? Let us sing to the Lord. If you're a person who, as we talk about belief, and you're like, I don't believe like that. I've only been this intellectual. <laughs> Jesus is not my Lord and King. I'm not resting completely and only in him for saving faith. Then do this. As we sing, call out to him. And if you've called out to him, tell somebody about it today so they can help you take the next steps. Let's worship together.